Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's most cost-effective electronic flight bag for iPhone and iPad. Get a free one-month trial today at ozrunways.com. And by the Aviation Careers Expo 2012, Brisbane, August 25th. Find out more at aviationaustralia.aero slash expo. And by Jetride Australia. Be a top gun for the day in a Soviet-era L-39 jet. Visit jetride.com.au slash PCDU for the fastest ride in the country. Well, day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 92 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Fisher, and joining me as always, the balloonatic himself, Grant McHeron. How are you, mate? Hey, not bad, mate. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. Not doing too much ballooning, I'll, I'll tip in this wintry weather here in Melbourne. No, no, and haven't had any time to get away from Melbourne and go out a few hours to places with better weather, back up on the escarpment and so on. So, no, very much grounded, but I have got my uh, wings, I've got my logbook and my certificate, so I'm ready to go out there. I just have to organise time, funds, weather, you know, the usual things when you go flying. Well, I tell you what, Grant, I reckon somebody else who probably hasn't been doing any ballooning either is Cathy Mexted. How are you, Cathy? Good, thanks, Steve. How are you? Not too bad. I, now, you, I, I take it you've done no ballooning since we spoke to you last. No, no, I've been doing a lot of no ballooning, Steve. Um, in fact, um, I've never been ballooning. Well, we can fix that if you want. But meanwhile, I hear that you're actually doing negative ballooning and you're now fitting into that shirt we got you. <laughs> Running after balloons. That's right. <laughs> See, Kathy would fit that shirt much better, Grant, if you just gave her a job at your, uh, you know, your company there. Yeah, yeah. Hold this line. I've also never been skydiving. Yes. I've been doing a lot of never skydiving. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could talk about this all night, but we've got an episode to get on with, so uh, let's have a look what's coming up a bit later in the episode. We'll be meeting one of Grant's uh, fellow ballooning mates, who's going to share with us some great stories of some of his exploits over the years. I also catch up with the uh, chief flying instructor at Sharp Airlines, uh, that's out in Hamilton in Western Victoria, and uh, they've got a very highly regarded training scheme out there and I managed to catch up with him recently at a uh, careers expo and we had a great chat about that and also Anthony the infrequent flyer Simmons returns with another view from the lounge and that's a bit topical too Grant uh, talking about uh, balloons I think he's going to put you on the spot actually. Oh really I look forward to hearing it. That'll all be coming up a bit later in the show but first Kathy you've got a very special guest. Yes Helene Young. Uh, I found Helene through Twitter and a mutual friend, Fleur MacDonald, who's also a novelist like Helene, unlike myself. I did a story on Helene for Australian Pilot and we had a very long chat on the phone and I thought this would be a great one for a podcast. Helene is a Dash 8 captain based in far north Queensland and welcome to Plane Crazy, Helene. Thanks for joining us. Lovely to be here, Cathy, Steve and Grant. It's um, a pleasure to be here. Love your podcasts and and love what you're doing for aviation. It's great. (laughs) Well, that's okay. You're allowed on the show then. Yes, we'll keep going. (laughs) Did I say the right thing? Absolutely. The check's in the mail, Helene. (laughs) Perfect. I could do with the pay rise. (laughs) So, Helene, you've you've had a lot of of books published now and you've actually won quite a few awards for them. But uh, before we talk about the books, let's talk a bit about your aviation history. Uh, As Cathy said, you're uh, you're flying the dash, but uh, I guess there was a, a journey to get to that point. I, I was fortunate enough to start flying in 1989 and, and for those that remember their aviation history, that was a year of um, some upheaval in aviation in Australia and and it was 
a difficult journey, I guess, because once I'd done my full-time course, there were very few jobs around for beginning pilots. I was fortunate to get a job at the place that I trained, which at the time was called Air Training Centre, um, partly probably because the owner was after uh, a mentor for his daughter who was coming through, and women weren't very thick on the ground, so female instructors were something to be um, somewhat cherished if you're looking for somebody to look after your daughter. So that's where I started off, working as an instructor at Archerfield, and I had seven and a half years doing that and loved it absolutely loved it how did you find your flying <laughs> like most pilots I pulled a lot of beers and I, I waited tables and um, mowed grass and delivered pamphlets um what else did I do that was probably the extent of the the jobs at the time to pay the aviation bills it was it was something that when we when my husband and I decided that yes he was quite happy for me to go and spend any spare cash we had on flying um the deal was that I would carry on working uh part-time at something so I was the, the queen of weddings at a place called Petrie Mansions uh, <laughs> so perhaps that's where my romantic streak got <laughs> well and truly given a bit of a run but yeah I, I used to do a lot of the wedding functions on weekends at, at Petri Mansions and that paid the flying bills. Now what have you been doing today? Oh the day from hell doing a check on a chappie doing his command upgrade on the dash all stops from Brisbane and let me tell you the weather was horrendous you've probably seen on the news the flooding around Mackay and Townsville and we were taking our little passengers through that so we were almost two hours late by the time we finished the milk run yeah so when I finish talking to you folks I'm off for a wine because I'll be in desperate need of one by then but um yeah, yeah Townsville had a little mini tornado today they did and the refueler in fact was telling me that it looked as though that there was a surf breaking on the tarmac because the the wind was so strong and there was so much water on the tarmac it was whipping it up into little waves and oh, wow. how sure- far do you fly in the dash eight hello uh, the longest it's the longest sector we do we probably come close to being the longest one going to moresby and back and we also go up to Horn. So in this, the average sector length is normally sort of 45 minutes, an hour and, and 15, but we do some that are closer to two hours, yeah. What's your experiences flying into Port Moresby? Do you get out or do you just sit in the cockpit and send the men out? I've never been there, so is it as no. terrifying as everyone imagined? We have, the, the airline I work for has quite a strict policy on if we are having to overnight there, we are only allowed to go from the airport to the hotel in a, a security vehicle and we're not allowed to leave the hotel. I haven't had the pleasure pleasure of overnighting there yet, but I certainly get out and have a chat and, and I've, you know, got my little pigeon English words to say hello to them <laughs> because they're, they're really lovely. I, I've never had a problem with any of them and, and I guess because I am a female and uh, am a captain, there's this extra little level of respect because they look at me like I'm some strange person from out of space. <laughs> yeah. So they're really, they're really lovely and, and they all call me captain. They, they come up and say, captain, may I help you? And it's, <laughs> it's just delightful. Yeah, they're lovely. You know, that. I guess if you went outside of the airport confines, perhaps I'd see a different side of it. And, and it's a shame because from the air, it is such a beautiful country. You're in a very controlled environment on that airport. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's the same here. If you came to a major airport at Tullamarine and never really left the, the confines of the airport, you'd have kind of a different view on Melbourne and Australia. You would. you think it was all clean and tidy with <laughs> <laughs> lots of little tugs running everywhere, yeah? <laughs> I'm, cu- I'm curious about the life of a, of a pilot in the regionals versus a pilot working perhaps you know in the in the step up from that in the in the mainstream airlines I guess I mean is it a different lifestyle would you think or is it sort of similar sort of uh, work ethic I think it's different and most of us certainly the older ones amongst (laughs) amongst the company chose regionals because it gave us a different lifestyle I I have to admit to being a homebody I love being home I love my husband and my dog and my couch probably in that order (laughs) did I get that right 
Um, so I would much rather be home than spending time away in a hotel room. That's that's just not for me. So regional flying tends to give you a maximum of two or three overnights a week and then you're home for the rest of the time. The downside of that is you probably work a little bit harder for the company to get their return. So whereas I have friends that um, work in, in mainline airlines who are, are working maybe 10 on and, and, you know, well, not 10 on, but, you know, 10, 10 working days out of their month and some others on, on reserve days and then a fair stack of days off. We tend to work for five days out of seven. You work more days, but you're home at night. And I guess yeah. that's a trade-off. For me, we don't have a family that didn't matter, but I can certainly see for guys that have got young families why that's so important for them to be able to be home with the kids at night. For many of us, we like that sense of home. Some people mm. just love the sense of travel and running around the place, a bit more nomadic and gypsy, but uh, there's something to be said for coming home. Yeah, and I think that at the end of the day, we get a lot of the travel benefits still that go with that. So it, it allows you to do a little bit more in your leisure time while and giving you an aircraft to fly that you actually get to fly. No offence intended to anybody that flies something bigger than a dash, but regional flying, you're still doing circling visual approaches onto runways. And, and while in bad weather, I'd, I'd never want to be doing one of those for real with 74 passengers following me. At the end <laughs> of the day, it's a lot more hands-on flying than, you know, up, up, autopilot on and and then, you know, 500 foot above the deck, taking the autopilot off and landing it. And and I think for a lot of us, that's what the joy of it is as well. We still physically like flying an aircraft and I still get a buzz every time the power levers go forwards and, and you get that rush up the runway. Love it. Do you find that uh, it offers you the opportunity to spend more time with the passengers, with the public and, and really share that, you know, that interest and that fascination that everybody has with flying? I mean, you, you sort of find in the mainstream airlines this, these days, it's all a bit clinical, really. I mean, mm. you're not allowed to really, you know, you can't let kids up in the cockpit, this sort of stuff. Oh. That's just a tragedy. And, and I think that we're losing an, an entire generation of yes. would-be pilots because they can't see the wonderment of the best view in the world. And it is the best view in the world. Indeed. And, you know, when the Horn Island runs, when I first started in, in the airline, it was a two-hour sector on a Dash 8 200 or 100. And you had to do something to entertain the 35 kids you had down the back. <laughs> so there'd be this little procession of them up to the flight deck to have a look and you'd hit all the test functions to make all the lights come on and they'd stand there with eyes like little saucers and, and they just... <laughs> loved it um, and I think it's an enormous shame that we can't still do that and there is that connection with your passengers that you simply can't have because our flight deck door is tends to be open on the ground the number of them that you know yell something out especially if there's a couple of girls up the front the boys do like to yell something out <laughs> as they're getting off the aircraft normally like yeah good on you love um, and, and yes you're quite often involved in, in having to solve their problems directly rather than it's just being done by a faceless person up the flight deck Now with the Dash 8 you were talking about a bit more hand flying and a bit more on top of it all, but you've still got a lot of automation up the front. Are oh. you, are you, did you say you're on the Q400 or are you on the 200s? No, I'm on the 400 these days, but yeah. we started when I first started with the airline, we flew from twin otters to shorts to 100s to 200s to 300s, and now we've got the 400s. So I'm on the 400s now. And yes, it's like a little mini airline at all intents and purposes. It's got two beautiful screens for either side that have all your information on them. There is a lot more automation and they are a little less pleasant to fly than the 300s are, in my opinion. I think they're not quite as, as sweet as the 300s were. They, they, 300s are a very nice machine to fly. Is that because um, they're that stretch and they're lugging a little bit more weight? Yeah, and I think the wing's not quite as forgiving. It's a stiffer ride in a 400 than it is okay. in a 300. So you feel the bumps and the lumps a little bit more and it's it's heavier on the controls. So you, you, you have to push and pull, whereas a 300, you sort of could finesse it with a couple of fingers and it felt really quite sweet. Yeah, I, I haven't been in for a flight in a 400. I've been on a 200. 200s and, and, are little sports cars. They're great. Yeah, it was zippy. It was great. 
Yeah, they're lovely. And you could fill them up with a truckload of fuel and a truckload of passengers and get the job done and still come home with some fuel on board, um, whereas the 300 don't have quite the legs that the 200s did, yeah. With your writing, can you tell us how um, your flying influenced your writing? Your first novel, Wings of Fear, there's a brilliant scene where they – Crash land, is it? Is that the term? <laughs> that, crash yeah. land on the beach. And it had, I had my mouth open thinking, holy snappers, what's going to go on here? <laughs> and, uh, so for anybody who hasn't read, read these books, um, Lauren and Morgan are the two female pilots and it goes 50, 20, 10. Lauren counted down on the radar altimeter. As she got to 10, Morgan closed the throttles and pulled back on the column to flare the aircraft. The moment of truth, she thought, and barely a word had been spoken. The left wheel dug into the soft sand, dragging the aircraft around and then it goes bloody blah Water sprayed from the wheels as they ran over damp sand, still turning props, sucked the spray even higher. In a chaotic whirl and the edge of the narrow beach seemed to rush towards them and then they ran out of airspeed. And I'm exhausted by the time I got to that. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds like one of my normal landings. What are you on about? <laughs> uh, can you uh, share with us how you came to get that so accurately without having actually slammed something into a beach somewhere, which I'm assuming you didn't, but uh, no, it no. just seemed a little bit too close to reality to... Uh, <laughs> To have been made up late one night with a glass of wine, a typewriter. Well, that that's right. And it, the scene itself was always there in, in my mind. Um, and I, I guess I used a little bit of the time that I was spending in simulators um, down in Sydney. And I was training people on the 300. And one of the, the assessment sessions we do with pilots had gone very well. And they were two very high-performing pilots. And we had about 25 minutes left. And I said to them, guys, I just want to try doing something with a simulator to see what it does. So they weren't aware that they were going to end up in my book. They were very good about it. <laughs> I'm sure they needed trauma counselling after that <laughs> field landing. Of course, it wasn't possible to fire a missile into the engine because <laughs> the simulators don't come equipped with missile launchers. So the best I could do was shut the engine down on them without telling them what was going to go on and uh, forcing them down just off field. So the thing that worked for me was the Sim did a great job of leaving us all hanging in our straps with this sense of disorientation. And that was what I was trying to get into the story. So, yeah, I was fortunate to have an amazing training tool that I could put to a little bit of use for the book. But please don't tell my boss. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they don't listen to this. Helene, with your first book, Wings of Fear, do you want to just um, give us a quick rundown on what it's about? I've read it, of course, and written about it. Sure. W- Wings of Fear takes a, a female captain who's had a fair bit of trauma in her life and puts her in the middle of what is essentially a terrorist plot to blow up Sydney primarily the uh, station at Circular Quay, and you can blame that on spending too many times in Sydney, <laughs> looking up at Circular Quay and thinking, what would happen if you drop this down on top of everybody? <laughs> I don't know why my mind works like that. It's probably not a good thing. But anyway, it's, so it's centred around a terrorist attack and she's under suspicion for having leaked information because she's being essentially used by somebody else who's got a very different agenda. And it, it's set in North Queensland, it's set in the Dash 8s, it's set in the coastal surveillance world, which is something that I haven't had the pleasure of doing. I would love to have gone and flown a bit of coast watch work, but many of the guys that I've worked with have done that sort of coastal surveillance work and they've been very generous in sharing their stories with me. So that was where the story started 
and it was then just a matter of, of setting it in that. Coastwatch fly the 200s, don't they? They do. They've also got 300s now. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, was, I was going to ask you if you'd had much time in Coastwatch because reading the book, it, it's it's quite well done. And to, it's, it's obvious that you've got a, either personal knowledge of that environment or you've uh, got a lot of people who have that and they're available to chat with you about it. Yeah. Oh, again, it was those lovely runs to Horn Island with not a lot to do because <laughs> glad to read newspapers on the flight deck because that's not operational. And these guys had fabulous stories to tell. There were a couple of them in particular who were very senior in the Coast Watch operation who were very generous with, with sharing their stories and the sorts of experiences and have continued to provide input all the way through the three books. Were they still in the Coast Watch? Is it like being a reservist in the military or uh, had no, they I, left to do the the um, Yeah, they, they'd left to join us. Um, and and I, I did say to them, you know, is there some sort of confidentiality clause we're breaking here? But because everything in, in my books is imaginary, um, perhaps loosely based on fact, then they, they were fine with that. And I have some fabulous photographs from, from them that they'd taken of operations and, and aircraft while they're out and about as well. So it, it was great. And given all the um, suspense and action and murder and all the <laughs> other stuff that happens in there, you've managed to weave a romance through it, which has given your books the romance title. But, you know, actually they're far from that, aren't they? they well, they are. Um, I, I guess I'm a sucker for a happy ending. Yeah, yeah, me too. I like <laughs> girl and they all just, you know. That's Underneath fun. a moon that explodes for no reason, yeah. <laughs> it's got that bit. It's got the explosions, but there was a reason. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You see, there's a boy slant on it. So don't you gentlemen <laughs> believe in happy endings? I'm, I'm a rather cynical guy at times, so it's kind of hard for me to disconnect and just enjoy, but I, I did enjoy these books. Uh, well, sorry, this I've read the first one. I've got the second one on my um, Kindle software ready to go on my tablet. I found it to be a fun book and the background knowledge is there. You know, the love interest was interesting and the uh, steamy bits were fun and the <laughs> Uh, yes, caution, there are steamy bits. Woo-hoo. Steamy bits. They're only lightly steamy. We oh, can't they're mild. The door. That's mild right. is very I didn't mild. blush. So I've got an imagination. Okay, it was enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. If I managed to get your imagination going, I succeeded. Well done. <laughs> there you go. But no, it was it was well done and it built well. And you know, it's the required hook is that the uh, main protagonists wind up in things that are bigger and, and yet manage to plough through and save the day in the end and things. And, and yeah, that was good. It was well done and it, there were enough little twists and turns and, and developments through there that you, you were still going, well, I know it's going to, oh, no, I don't. So it was good. Thank you. Thank you. And then the difficult second book came along and uh, I picked that one up to read thinking, oh, I wonder how she's followed up the first one. And can I read another extract? This is the very first words of the beginning of the book. Mayday, mayday, mayday. This is sailing vessel, silver swan, silver swan, silver swan. Can anyone hear me? Claire pleaded. The screech of the wind and the roar of the ocean drowned out the answering crackle of static. Broken rigging beat its own rhythm of destruction against the boat's hull. So I'm in then. <laughs> I've got to read the whole book. <laughs> Hook, line and sinker. So the second book takes the, uh, what do you call, not the lead character, the second. Secondary, uh, yeah. The co-star from the first book is the star in the second book because the first one's off being happy, happy chappies. And and she goes on an equally exciting adventure, doesn't she? And I have to tell you, for all the flying and running around that they do and it does, it is very gripping. The bit that has stayed with me is when they were up, you know, they're about to go and rescue the sex slaves. Then is it the bikies or somebody comes and she, the pilot, the main character, gets under the truck and is clinging (laughs) to the chassis under the truck with her blonde hair dragging in the dirt. And I thought, I just never would have thought of that. I thought, my God, she's got away with it. What a 
great gal, you know, and then way on it says, no, no, we soon as that bird under the truck. And I thought, surely they couldn't have seen her there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the second one's just as uh, racy as the first one. So, Helene, you're writing about missiles, terrorists, sex slaves, sinking yachts, cyclones, bikey gangs, bodies on the beach. How does a nice girl like you come up with all this stuff? I read too many newspapers. (laughs) I was going to say, which part of town do you live in and can I move out? So, Helene, with the third book, Burning Lies, which you finished and it'll be published soon with Penguin. Can you give us a rundown of Burning Lies or is that not allowed to do that? No, no, not at all. Penguin's Penguin's very happy for me to talk about um, <laughs> about the books. Burning Lies picks up two of the characters again from Shattered Sky, but this time it's looking at um, the work of an arsonist up on the Atherton Tablelands. And that book began its genesis right back in the, I think it was 2003, Canberra fires. Um, my sister was in Canberra and my husband and I also had um, an experience where we got caught in, in some bushfires. We, we were down staying with friends and friends of theirs, were, their house were, was under threat and it was Christmas Day and everybody had to basically drop everything and go and evacuate these people and do what they could. So I had always had in my mind that I wanted to write a book about bushfires. I found out that the Coast Watch Dash 8s were used during the Canberra fires with their fleur for tracking arsonists. It was another way of being able to weave a story around the Coast Watch operation. How do you track an arsonist? Oh, well, they use the forward looking for reds. Um, yeah, that's, so they, that's sharp in the bush as a heat yeah, source. they track that vehicle leaving the scene of a fire and that person gets arrested miles away from where they were and they've got proof that the thing, you know, they've got proof on camera that somebody had lit a fire. And it's, and it's a a tool that isn't widely known, I guess, and, and they must be using it. Civil, there must be civil ap- applications for it now. Well, so, the, the police are using it all the time for tracking a criminal through yeah, um, through the dark right. and so on. I mean, you yeah. see those movies where the helicopter gets down really that's low to chase them. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're sitting up there, you know, half a mile back and following it on the floor and they're using the low-light camera to get the number plate. So let's just step back a little bit. You're a pilot. You're flying. You've used some of your knowledge of your reality as a pilot and that from other pilots around you. But where did you come up with the idea to even start writing at all? Um, I, I guess it <laughs> runs in the genes. My dad was a, a bit of a writer, a dabbler. He didn't have anything published, but he used to write children's stories for us. He was a ship's engineer, a marine engineer, a ship's engineer. So he spent reasonably large chunks of time away. So he used to write children's stories and post them home to mum to read to us. And I grew up thinking that everybody wrote stories and got to school and discovered to my horror that <laughs> we were in fact weirdos, <laughs> but happy little weirdos with all these wonderful stories that dad used to invent for us. And he used to write stories that, you know, clearly included his three children in them as the starring characters, <laughs> which which was a lot of fun as well. But um, so I just grew up thinking that everybody wrote stories. Um, and I went to school, loved, was your typical kid that loved English, did reasonably well at English, had teachers that would have preferred me to go and do journalism, but being the stubborn little madam that I was at <laughs> age 17, I had other plans and that didn't include going and being a journalist. So I went off and, and did a variety of things and then eventually came back to aviation slightly later on and still had in the back of my mind this idea that I would like to write a book. But it was only once I joined the airline and came to Cairns. And as you would know, in general aviation, you kind of work every hour that God gave you yeah. <laughs> and a few more. Uh, So I went from working essentially six days a week plus a day when the phone would ring anyway to ask me questions about students or what had I done to the program this week. And I've suddenly, I've got myself an airline job where I work three days on, have two on reserve, have two days off, and they pay me to fly to Dunk Island and have smoked salmon bagels and and hot chocolates for lunch (laughs) and then fly to Townsville and come back to Cairns and and go home. And I, I had this bulk of time. And 
I, we didn't know anybody when we moved to Cairns. We didn't have any friends and that sounds like we're <laughs> dreadfully antisocial people. But it's, you know, you, you've joined a small base. Um, you're the only female pilot. People don't quite know what to make of you to start with. And in that time that, that I, before we started to make friends, I just wrote. And my husband had no idea that I was doing it. And it was only about well, two years after I'd written the very first book that I've ever written, which will never see the light of day. I listened to Ed. What was it about? Well, they reckon you write a book, your first book is normally autobiographical. And it was about an Australian working in the Lake District and falling in love with her boss. Oh my, yes, that sounds like my life. <laughs> <laughs> so embarrassingly enough, it'll never make it to the Oh, uh, I don't know. It's one of those ones that after your 20th book, someone digs out and goes, well, guess <laughs> What? Oh, that would be so cringeworthy. It would be horrendous. <laughs> well, you're allowed to edit it a little. <laughs> oh, major, major editing and major rewriting. But, <laughs> but so, so you went from that one, that which is buried under a rock in various secret places <laughs> behind the moat and the dragon and so on. That's and um, so, did you make the leap straight from there into um, the first book, or did you? No. Like, how did you come up with the scene and all that kind of stuff, and the the idea that you wanted to do suspense? Yeah, well, I'd always been a reader of things like John le Carré, um, Wilbur Smith, Dick Francis, Clive Cusser, you name them, all those blockbusting male writers with lots of action. I'd read them, I loved them. Why I thought that I would want to write a straight romance, I have no idea because while I have always loved romances and, and the Jane Austens and, and the more, you know, the modern day books as well, I guess my first love was always that sort of action story. But I, want, I knew I wanted to put some relationship stuff in it. So it took me another three unpublished manuscripts oh, <laughs> before no. I finally went, hang on, what you really want to do is write a book about aviation, so why don't you just pluck up your courage and sit down and have a go? And I think part of it was that fear that I might not do it justice that, that kept me from writing it initially. And then Wings of Fear came from three very different starting points. There, there was a, a moment in time up here in Cairns, which you may, you guys may remember, when a little rusty boat managed to wend its way all the way down the coast past Cooktown, um, <laughs> and past Port Douglas and land at Holloway's Beach. Do you remember that? Was that people smuggling going? On? Yeah, it was. Well, it was. It was a bunch of Chinese gentlemen, and the first thing anybody knew about them was when they tried to catch a taxi into town. And the taxi. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. What are these Chinese blokes in suits doing at Holloway's yeah. Beach at six a.m.? And that was really when they started to ramp up the Coast Watch operation. And the government went, "Hang on, we we have a problem." And it was sort of the first time, I guess, down south gave recognition to the fact that North Queensland is so close to Papua New Guinea and so close to Indonesia. Yeah, yeah. it's huge as well. There's. Uh, Yes. Like the whole top end is is absolutely massive and enormous coastline and it's it's almost impossible to patrol it properly. Absolutely. And and you know, largely uninhabited with plenty of old wartime strips on there. You know, you hear stories from police that have worked up there um, in the, the communities of knowing that there are aircraft landing somewhere close by, but by the time you get to the overgrown American yeah. strip that was put down in 1943, the aircraft's been and done its business and gone. (laughs) So, yeah, all sorts of stuff happening up here. So it it was a prime place for that. And then, of course, we started getting pilots leaving Coastwatch coming to work for us, so I started to get their stories. So it was just fermenting away. And then, you know, the final catalyst that made me write the opening couple of scenes was actually finding a dead body on a beach, um, on our beach here at Trinity. And and while that was just a tragic drowning, it really set that what-if going in my head. And I went, right, I need to sit and write this. So eventually I did. The story was in there, bugging 
waiting to come out. It was, yeah. And and I am one of those people who, strange as it may sound, has that kind of character voices going on in your head at fairly inappropriate times. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> my husband knows when I get this glazed look on my face, it's like, oh, she's off with the friends. Don't worry about it. <laughs> people say that about me when I'm thinking of doing another podcast. Helene, does the FO ever say it when you're flying along? <laughs> no, bless their little cotton socks. They're all very protective of me. They're very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's um, that the, captain again. <laughs> a, exactly. <laughs> do the male FOs ever stick their hand up and say, when are you going to write about us? Or is it always oh, going to be women? No, there are several of them that have offered me their names. Um, you know, there, there's one, his name, I, and I can say this because Alex is a little darling, his name is Alex McQueen. Now, what a fantastic name for a hero is that. Alex McQueen, it has his ring to it. But I do explain to him I'm going to have to make the hero about a foot shorter than he is, bless him. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's cool with that. He doesn't mind. Oh, so can you tell us now why you went to Penguin? Yeah, I had a two-book deal with Ashet, um, okay. and when, when that deal was up, it was a matter of them assessing whether they wanted another one of the Coast Watch series, and the book was already written by then, and my publisher herself loved the book. But, of course, the publishing company is made up of marketing departments and, and acquiring agents and, and publishers and all the rest of it. So it didn't fit with what they wanted to come up in their list in the next 12 months. And and because it is a two-book contract, that's the only obligation that they have. Penguin was very interested in it. And then the book won the Romantic Book of the Year Award and Penguin was extremely interested then. <laughs> uh, and and I think that they're probably quite a good fit for me. It's, it's a difficult decision because Ashet had then come back and said, well, we wouldn't mind looking at it again. And the world of publishing is probably as strange as aviation. (laughs) (laughs) That's scary. And that's exactly, that's saying a lot. So I I have a new editor and a new publisher and that's been a new learning curve uh, and they do business slightly differently to the way Ashet did. But, you know, they're both big publishers. They're both very professional about the way they go about their business. And I I figure now I'm just kind of a little blessed. I've got two wonderful publishers in my corner. So, you know. So have you been commissioned to do book four? Um, No, it's a book by book contract with Penguin. Um, But having said that, they know what's in the pipeline and they're making positive noises. So keep your fingers crossed for me. (laughs) How long do you you have to pump out the next one? Um, Well, they like to see a book a year and book four is pretty much in first draft so it just needs to have a lot of tidying up just skipping back a tad, now we've just spoken, you've gone from Ashe to Penguin, mm-hmm. but how'd you bag Ashe? I belong to an organisation called the Romance Writers of Australia. And while that sort of sounds like, oh my God, it's going to be a bunch of little old ladies with purple hair knitting. <laughs> um, well, no, I've galore. seen the Facebook photos. Yes. I've seen the parties. <laughs> they are the most amazing, vibrant bunch of women. Um, and they cover all sorts of genres from everything like mine to historicals to there's a truckload of paranormal. There's a truckload of erotica, which is the great big um, breakthrough publishing at the moment, as well as the more traditional what we call category romance, which is what people know as Harlequin, Mills and Burns. Um, And they had a competition that I'd entered, did quite well in that one. So I put it into an American competition. The book was a finalist and and that's a competition that has about 1,200 entries in it. So for a little Australian book to manage to make it to the finals meant that when I pitched to the um, Hachette publisher on my resume was this thing that said I'd been a Golden Heart finalist. So she asked for the finished manuscript. And getting that sort of, you know, request is very hard to do. It is hard to yes. get published um, and probably even more so in Australia where they there just isn't the 
the number of, of publishers around that you can pitch to. So, And she sent it back initially and said, look, it's not quite there yet. I think what she was looking for and, and what I now realise myself I really enjoy doing is turning the landscape into a character of its own and bringing that through the book. So that's what she was looking for. I rewrote the book um, with that in mind and, and she bought that, that one and, and the next one. Have you considered the online self-publishing kind of route? I have. And self-publishing, obviously, is a growth industry. I think the problem with self-publishing, it's almost like a tsunami out there at the moment. There are so many people self-publishing. A lot of them aren't taking the care that they should do with their work because once your work is out there, it's out there. <laughs> and you <laughs> yes. can't go drawing it back in again to go, oh, I've, I've, I've made a typo. And Kathy well knows because, bless her, she's pointed out some errors in my website on occasions for me. And you just cannot possibly do a perfect job of editing your own work. So if you work in self-publish and if I was ever to go down that line I'd still be looking at hiring myself an editor mm-hmm. I'd want somebody who was prepared to be brutal with me because as a writer you know, there are phrases that you just think are absolutely perfect and they're to die for and they get cut because they're really crap <laughs> <laughs> but it's my child damn it exactly exactly so you need somebody who's either firm enough or in my case I've been fortunate with editors who've managed to make it sound so amusingly stupid the lines that I've left in that you immediately immediately want to take them out because you can see the error of your way. And I think that's a skill all of its own. So yes. if you're going to go self-publishing, I think that you have to be careful that the product you put out there is as good as you possibly can get. And you then have to, unfortunately, my observation is you then tend to have to go around and drum up every man and his dog who might be in your Facebook page, your Twitter account, email, log out, whatever, and badger them to hop on Amazon and vote for you. And that just doesn't sit comfortably for me. It's, it's hard enough promoting yourself as a writer because most of us are introverts. This is great, talking to a computer. This is really easy. <laughs> we're, you know, we're, not, we're not people that necessarily want to get up on stage. And I think of it when I'm doing the publicity stuff, and, and I quite like chatting to readers, but it's almost like you put on Helene Young, the writer's persona, as opposed mm-hmm. to Helene Young, the pilot, or Helene Young, the introvert, who'd rather be sat at home reading books herself. And if you're self-publishing, you have to do all the tarting of yourself, and, and that would be, you know, it's hard enough, let alone doing that. All the things those so-called nasty horrible publishers who take a lot of money for actually do reasonably well. Yeah, well, that's that's right. And see, I mean, the sort of publishers, a shed and penguin actually pay me in advance and then they look after everything. You have what's called vanity publishers. And it's a shame that there are people out there that hand their money over to these people for them to publish your book because it's just not right. They're making money out of the printing process. They're not making money out of publishing or promoting that author. But yep. it's it's also a boom industry. I sit on Smashwords and I'm also on LibraryThing.com. Yep. And LibraryThing has a uh, – you can – put yourself down to get some advanced copies of various books. Oh, and, yes, arcs, yes. Yeah, and I've found that really handy. I've, I've picked up some books I wouldn't have otherwise read. You get a free copy of, of an electronic format. The only problem is you actually have to write a review. Well, that's not hard, actually. I'm, no. There's no. only been one I said was okay, not brilliant. Most of the rest of them have been quite good, actually. Excellent. And yeah, it's it's a brilliant thing. You get on library thing, you put in all the books you like, and it tells you you might want to try this book. It's one of those yep. collective mind recommendation systems. Well, it is. And how do you feel about that? collective mind recommendation type of thing? Well, I've been online for ages since the 80s and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. so I find that it's quite handy because in my office, there's not many of us in there. So we're not always able to say, oh, have you seen the latest show or have you read the latest book or things like that? So by me being able to key in, like I've done it with Amazon and lots of other systems. You key in what you like, like uh, Last FM, things like that. 
this yep. is the music I listen to. Oh, try this. And one of the funniest things on library thing is to go, okay, well, there's some books. Yeah, that, those and a lot of the recommendations have been spot on. There's a few wow. that you're like, that's odd. But uh, I've <laughs> got quite a few hundred books in there now, so it's good. Wow. Helen, you mentioned a couple of authors that have been influences uh, on your, uh, you know, for you to go and uh, do writing yourself. And uh, you mentioned Lacare there and Clive Cussler, two of my favourites. So I, I must ask this question as a bloke. Is there is there any intention to write books other than romance books? No, definitely would like to write some books that are, are more just straight action and not necessarily with the whole relationship. But I'd also write, like to write some books that are even more just relationship focused as well so you know I think as a writer you need to push your boundaries and if you don't then you're not continuing to learn so yeah plenty more things to explore I really really want to write a book set in Macquarie Island because we came through there when we came back from Antarctica and it's just got the most amazing feel to it and that would not be a romance that would be something probably with a bit of historical and a bit of modern day and and some sort of suspense yeah I think actually Kessler put Dirk Pitt through Macquarie Island at one stage didn't he did he has he already done one That'd yeah. be right. Well, well, I'll tell you what Kessler doesn't do well, and that's romance. Anytime he ventures into that, it's like, oh, really? <laughs> Helene, what were you doing in Antarctica? That's one place that, I'd really I love to go. Oh, it was amazing. What were you doing <laughs> down there? Well, I've always wanted <laughs> to go. How did you get there? <laughs> it was did you a- get lost? We almost got lost. It was a 26-day cruise out of Bluff in New Zealand. We came back into Hobart and it was Aurora Expeditions at the time was run by Greg Mortimer and his wife. Um, And Greg Mortimer used to be one of Australia's top climbers. And I used to do a bit of climbing years ago when I was fit and healthy. So I knew about him and I knew about the fact that he he was a bicentennial. They did the bicentennial climb to Mount Minto down in, in Antarctica. So I figured that any trip that he was running was going to be very much that sort of expedition thing. So it was is a relatively small Russian icebreaker with 90 guests and, and a few staff and a bunch of scientists and a bunch of Zodiacs and, and off we went. Um, and it was mind-boggling. Um, I would love to go and do it again. Probably won't because it was incredibly expensive yes. and there are a whole stack of other places that I also want to go and see. But the immenseness of it was standing in the middle of this fast white and and just our ship being the only thing for, for miles, hundreds of miles, was amazing. And sitting at one moment, we sat on what was an ice floe, the, the ship was moored off, and there was a, hun- a pack of killer whales hunting up and down the side of the ice floe and you could feel them dive underneath the ice and you could feel them scraping underneath your feet. It was just amazing. <laughs> just amazing. Okay. Well, they, they, Ooh, look at these seal, lovely morsels. <laughs> They they told us they were seal eaters, so we hope that none of them confused us for seals. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't stand there going, arr, arr, arr. Yeah. yeah, but no, it was it was amazing. We went into McMurdo Sound where the American base is and the New Zealand base is, and you couldn't have got a greater contrast between the two bases with this little yeah. tiny New Zealand base and, and the um, 1,200-strong American base on, on the other side of the hill. But, yeah, and watching the aircraft landing on the, the ice runway, it was the very end of the season, so the, the base was being um, shut down for winter. So the big star lifters were coming in and landing on the ice. Looked just amazing. <laughs> it is pretty amazing. I've seen the videos of it. I'd love to see it in person. But we actually had uh, one of the pilots um, oh. with Sky Traders, I believe it was Steve, who fly the A319 down to the Blue Ice oh, yes. Runway and the Casa uh, yep. 212s. I think they are. They're absolutely fascinating. What he was talking about about navigation and um, dealing with whiteouts and yep. the fact that they found a whole colony of emperor penguins that no one knew existed. You things existed. like that. Oh, how amazing! But that be book five. Could be book five. Probably further further down than that. I've got a whole stack of books bubbling away already. Don't put any more thoughts in my mind. <laughs> Maybe they get off the pig farm and go. 
I think the good thing is to have a lot of things on, bubbling away, but quite obviously you're able to focus on the current and not get distracted. I know a lot of arty folks and creative types who are like partway through something and then all of a sudden, ooh, this is good. And yeah. it gets left in a halfway state and never gets released. But you're, you're obviously doing fine because number three is about to come out and number four is in first draft. That's fantastic. Yeah, you, and, and you do have to be quite disciplined about it. Obviously, juggling juggling my life is sometimes very difficult. Um, and, and people say, oh, you know, do you think about this when you're flying aircraft? Well, well, no, you don't really because you can't really because you've got other things you should be doing when you're yeah. sat in an aircraft. But I, if I get an idea that I think I... That would make a great story. I do have a file that just has the short little outlines of anything that I think is half decent. And sometimes I, I open that file and think, oh, when did I have that thought? I don't yeah. remember thinking about that. Or you that, sit, that keeps them safe. Sit down with a, with a glass of wine, pull out a story idea and go, oh, let's add some notes, you know, that kind of thing, yeah? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and that can be relaxation from, from the, the grind of sometimes editing, yeah. Yeah, and putting out the next story and, <laughs> and going, she said I had to do what? <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's anything like audio editing, I can, I can when you say grind, I can, I can identify with that, Helene. <laughs> yeah, I think yours is more skilled than mine. If you get it wrong, I'm, I'm guessing it could be pretty catastrophic. I just, you know. Undelete and go back again. <laughs> yeah, we do things like uh, re-record. Steve's really great. I'll be listening to something and go, hang on, I don't remember him saying that. He re-recorded that bit. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Oh, that's a bit that's sneaky. A, that's a scandalous lie, McHeron. I'll, I'll oh, you... When my answer of yes to a question I would never say yes to, I knew that you were doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Helene, we're, we're getting towards the end of our allotted time here, to use a famous phrase. While reading the first book, they're obviously wearing those famous green zoot suits or Zoom yeah. bags. Ever wanted to wear one? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, not they the flattering. So uncomfortable. I'm sorry. I have a pair of overalls, but they're ANSET overalls, <laughs> and I love them. <laughs> and I, I can do my bees in those, and you know, I don't get stung. But I have no desire to go to work in one of those green things. No. Well, Helene, that's been a fascinating chat. It's uh, been an interesting insight, not only into the world of writing, but also into the world of uh, flying in the regionals, which uh, really interests me. We hear a lot from uh, mainstream airline pilots, uh, but not so much from the regionals. So I find that really interesting, and uh, we wish you every success with your book. Folks, you can find Helene at heleneyoung.com. And Helene, you're on Facebook and on Twitter, of course. Of course. (laughs) Everywhere, everywhere. Fantastic. Part-time beekeeper, writer, and uh, Dash 8 check and training captain, Helene Young. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me today, guys. It's been fantastic. Look forward to more podcasts. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Helene. Bye. Plan your flight, fly your plan with Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways is Australia's most feature-packed, cost-effective and easy-to-use electronic flight bag complete with AIP, URSA, DAP East and West, flight planning and much more. You can even submit your flight plan direct into NAPES. With annual subscriptions starting at only $74.99, it's the perfect flying companion whether you rent or own your own aircraft. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. 
the 12th Annual Aviation Careers Expo is preparing for takeoff on Saturday, August 25th, and it's bigger and better than ever. This one-day extravaganza is all about aviation careers, training and employment. This is your chance to speak to the experts like Qantas, Chopper Line Flight Training, Oxford Aviation Academy, Swinburne University, Aviation Australia and more. Don't miss a moment of the action. Visit the aircraft display, free flight simulator and seminars. See you on Saturday the 25th of August, located at Aviation Australia, Brisbane International Airport, or search Aviation Careers Expo. Always wanted to be a Top Gun? Looking for the ultimate heart-pumping experience? JetRide gives you that and more. With your personally tailored flight and individual gift pack, JetRide will make your dreams come true. At up to 900 k's an hour in a Soviet-era L-39, this is the jet fighter thrill of a lifetime. Go to jetride.com.au slash PCDU or in Australia call 1-300-554-876. Nothing is impossible. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. Okay, I'm here at the uh, Melbourne Careers Expo and I'm at the Sharp Airlines stand and I'm here with uh, Peter Sobey and uh, he's going to tell us a bit about the training that you do at uh, Sharp Airlines and a bit about your airline in general. All right, well, Sharp Airlines, um, we operate in uh, regional South Australia, Western Victoria through to Essendon and also we've got the top end of Tasmania in the two islands at the moment. So the airline started probably um, 24 years ago and employs about 80 people now. And the cadetship which we're here really today about at the Expo is... Um, really about uh, trying to get the quality of pilots that Sharp needed to uh, move through their industry and hopefully on into the uh, rest of the regional airlines in Australia. So there was an interest through from um, uh, companies like Air North and Brindabella and Skippers and those sorts of airlines through talking with them, having trouble really finding a quality first officers they required to fly the more sophisticated aircraft. So Sharp decided 14 years ago that we'd set up a uh, cadetship um, take on 14 students a year and train them not just to the standards required by CASA but hopefully take them to a new level in training and commercial pilot licence up to somewhere where they could easily make the transition through from perhaps the piston engine aircraft to RPT and, and prop jet type aircraft. So that's where it sort of uh, started from. Uh, in the beginning we then went to the airlines, Qantas in particular, and said to them what are you looking for in pilots? Um, Standardisation was a big thing, uh, introduce him to SOPs and how to use checklists correctly. So all that was taken, that information, and it was taken back into uh, the start of our cadetship. So really our pilots, when they're giving, for instance, a passenger brief, wouldn't know any difference between flying a 172 and flying in a Metroliner or indeed in a high performance type aircraft. So, and that goes through with our SOPs and our checklists. So what we're doing is not training someone to uh, to become a pilot, what we're doing is trying to become a professional pilot. There's a big difference and that's what we've been about. So what you could say is it's really a hybrid course where you've got the CPL syllabus but you're putting your own extra bits and pieces on. Almost definitely. Of course we all have to teach to the, uh, to the syllabus and we do but there's a lot of extra goes into our course and that's really that extra is where we change a commercial pilot into someone who's who's a professional and that's the big 
um, the big stick that uh, we hold over our students that if they can't meet that professional level we're requiring then they're not going to make it in the aviation industry and so far look it's been uh, incredibly successful the guys work hard but they take it on board Mel and I tell them at the start of the course what our aims are what our objectives are for them so they know at the end of 18 months where we're requiring to be. What sort of age ranges would you find? You say you only have 14 a year, so I imagine it's quite competitive to get into that course. Do you have a, a quite a decent age range from young kids wanting to get into the industry to perhaps people a bit older who are looking at, at doing it? We do take on, you know, everyone has a bit of a change in life uh, at, at some stage or another, but I suppose what we're really looking for is taking guys with absolutely no experience at all uh, through an interview process, and they're mainly school leavers, although we do take them up to about 30 years of age. That's about our cut-off uh, period, and that's for no other reason, really, than once they get over 30, then they're sort of putting themselves into a corner as far as probably reading their dream of flying for Qantas or one of those companies one day. So we like them at an early age, with no experience, or as a, but again, uh, we do take them on if they've been at their local flying school, they might have a... Uh, halfway through their GFPT or something like that, we do take them on, yeah. So we know there's a bit of a, a phenomenon, I guess, over in the United States, perhaps, with the regional airlines there, where you have a lot of gentlemen pilots, guys that don't want to fly perhaps the heavy iron anymore, but are finding quite a, a good career in the regional, so there might be a bit of a market that way, perhaps. I know that, I know it's a bigger industry over there than it is here, obviously, but I wonder if that's a factor here. Oh, look, um, we'd like to encourage, especially our captains, to stay in the regional airlines. Absolutely. It's the biggest problem we have uh, in Australia, of course, is, is losing our pilots to the, um, the bigger companies. But uh, look, there is. There's, uh, some of the guys that have started with uh, Sharp Airlines, of course, are still with us. Mm. And they're with us as senior captains. And that's because they like the lifestyle that goes with being in the regional airlines. There's not quite that pressure on you. So um, most of them we encourage to go on as far as they want to in the, in the airline industry. But everyone's got goals of flying for the airlines. But once they get into the industry, they, you know, there's Coast Watch and there's Air Ambulance and there's the smaller regional airlines and there's uh, a lifestyle associated with that type of flying and a lot of them stay down in that part of the industry. So maybe we talk about the lifestyle of a regional airline pilot. I mean, we know that, you know, as you say, everybody's looking at flying for Virgin or Qantas or something like that. But, uh, you know, I personally would find it quite attractive, you know, at my age, you know, I'm, I'm 41, uh, working in regional airlines and doing that sort of work and getting around. So... I guess it's a far more hands-on role, isn't it, when you're a regional airline pilot, you're lighting the bags, I guess, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and that's where the more uh, the more senior pilots probably got an advantage. And it's purely he's just a little bit more wise to what the industry's about. He's got he's developed over the years better people skills. So certainly, uh, the more uh, age I suppose a pilot's got on him, and a bit more worldly he is, he certainly suits the regional airline cable mm. a lot better because. He's got to deal with passengers, he's got to deal with baggage, and uh, there's always the good and the bad uh, customer too, so he's got to learn how to deal with that as well. So um, you would find in regional airlines, the guys that have stayed in it are probably the guys that enjoy that sort of a connect with their customer. Once you get to the big airlines, you don't see them, of course. So yeah, um, so yeah it's probably probably that sort of guy that's stayed in that that middle range of aviation in Australia, I think. Yeah. Now, you say you fly around all the, the southeastern corner of Australia yep. to uh, various locations. Whereabouts are your base though? Uh, we are, our administration and training base is in Hamilton, Western Victoria. Our maintenance base is in Portland. Right. And probably our flying fly-out uh, base is in at Adelaide uh, Airport. Right. So um, there's, it's like typical of aviation. There's small bases everywhere. Yep. Uh, but hopefully uh, there's someone at the top of it all. That's Malcolm looking out over the whole, the whole of the company, uh, making sure it runs from day to day. Yeah. Absolutely. So the flying training is obviously done in Hamilton. Yep. 
and you've got facilities there for accommodation and all that sort of stuff for students? Yeah, we have accommodation there for the students and uh, we're not, as I say, there's 14 students so it's not a, it's not a, a big flying school by any means. Um, but we prefer to be out in the country. It's just an environment where it's we're away from the city. We certainly come down here for some of our navigation exercises. But by having our our own setup in Hamilton with a night quiet skies around, it makes it pretty easy for us to uh, uh, train. And I suppose one of the one of the biggest things with sharp training is that we have mainly, if not all at the moment, grade one instructors, and our ratio is incredible. It's one to 4.5. So right. for every 4.5 students, we put an instructor with them, and that's probably, I've found that needed, or that requirement has been there to get them to the level of training we require to move into the metro line. Right, and do you offer flight instructor training as uh, part of your package? Yeah, we do. I haven't, I uh, just uh, recently trained uh, another instructor that's come on board with us. He is a grade three and he's just going through the human see, but he was a young guy that wanted to move into the airlines one day and I looked at him as I was training him over the last couple of years and I thought he'd make a great instructor. So I offered him a position at Sharp as an instructor and then we train him ourselves, yeah. Now you, take, you said you're only taking 14 people in a year, so how many courses a year do you run? One. One, just so, one a year? Yeah, so it's um, there's an overlap there for six months. The course runs for 18 months and then you're fully qualified uh, commercial pilot with your instrument rating, uh, metro endorsement, and then you start work with um, Sharp Airlines for 12 months as the first officer. Right, so you'd start in something like 172 or something like that and the, work your way up? The training starts in a 172, the commercial and uh, instrument training is done in the Seneca, and then we move them from the Seneca into the uh, metro line, so it's a pretty big jump from there at the end of it all. Absolutely, yeah. And the metro line is actually, uh, it's quite a cool aircraft here because there's not that many of them here in Australia, is there? No, no, I think there's about... Um, I don't know, I think there's about 70 odd in, in Australia and Sharp have got six or seven of those. Um, but they are, uh, they like, they call them the accountant's aeroplane. They're actually an aeroplane that can make you a bob or two. Oh, well, that's good, yeah. Well, yeah, as the old saying goes, if you want a uh, small fortune in aviation, you should start with a large one. <laughs> yeah. I think somebody famous said that once. <laughs> well, well, I suppose that's, uh, we've been lucky, Mel and I, we have. I mean, it's been due to commitment and a lot of hard work and taking a few risks, and no doubt about that, we have taken some risks over the years, but it's all settled in a pretty solid little uh, company now. Now we're here at the uh, Melbourne Careers Expo here in uh, here in the Convention Centre. Um, have you had much traffic through? You've got a lot of interest, people showing a lot of interest? Yeah, there is. There's, um, of course, you, you're dealing with year 10 and 11 and some year 12 students, but, you know, part of, we have had a lot of interest, but, and part of Sharp's job here is too, is it's not just about Sharp Airlines here, we're also about encouraging young boys and girls when leaving school to get into the aviation industry and just giving them some general advice and what sort of training and standards they should be looking at when they're looking for somewhere to go and do that training. So it's not just about us, it's about the industry too. And it all comes down to money. I mean, it's, it's well known, obviously, it's a very, very expensive field to learn to to get your training in. I mean, do you get any sort of government help, vet fee help, anything like that with your courses? Uh, no, no, um, uh, we don't have vet fee help. We are an RTO and we did apply for vet fee help. The problem is that a company like Sharp Airlines that has got uh, amazing growth, it carries debt. We don't uh, own it. When we go and buy a new aeroplane, we don't go and pay cash for it. We borrow the money like most people do for a car or whatever. So if you're a training organisation carrying debt, you don't qualify for vet fee help. So oh, right. it's not it's not there for us, and that's unfortunate, but uh, we've just got to deal with that. Do you offer the option for your students to come in and uh, perhaps uh, be indentured to the company for some time and work off their training with you? Is that the way you work? Uh, we do. Uh, we have offered that scholarship-type uh, training before, 
Um, there's nothing nothing there at the moment uh, do that, but we certainly have um, young pilots that come in that might have some uh, debt still owing at the end of their course, and they are able to then pay that debt off once they start working with Sharp. But initially, it really is uh, money up front, uh, term by term, um, and most of the flying schools are like that now. Now, uh, people listening, if they want to find out more, they can find you online? Yeah, we've got a Sharp Cadet um, spot on the on the web, and there's also Sharp Airlines on there, and uh, I'd love to hear some emails from them. I'm at uh, ps at sharpairlines.com.au, so no problem. I'd, I'd welcome inquiries, not even about Sharp Airlines, inquiries about trying to help young people get into the industry. Fantastic, and uh, Peter, we know uh, we get around and you talk to people on the Sharp Airlines uh, people always talk highly of your training scheme so it's a pleasure to meet you and uh, wish you all the best good thanks for the opportunity thank you okay we're here in the 35th floor of the Sofitel building after just having breakfast having had a great balloon flight over Melbourne and I'm lucky to be sitting here with Chris Dewhurst the man who started it all at which point he rolls his eyes at me Chris welcome to the show mate Thank you very much, Grant. Pleased to be here. Back in Melbourne after 10 years. It's lovely. You've been in ballooning for a very long time in Australia. What got you into aviation? Well, it's in the blood. My father was a pilot. He flew Sunderlands in the Second World War. We came out to Australia in um, 1956, and so he was in aviation here all his life, and I, it was just natural for me to be involved as well. So I understand you got your fixed-wing licence at an early age? Well, I, I was always sitting on his lap flying so I was about uh, 14 and flying aeroplanes but I found them to be you know really quite boring because you can only ever take off and land on runways so it wasn't long before I got into balloons and I've never looked back frankly. Okay so what made you realise that ballooning was there and was the one for you? I was running an adventure travel company in Sydney I set one up with a friend of mine up there and maybe about 1977 and um, I saw a documentary on Phil Kavanagh who now makes all the balloons in Australia and he made a balloon out of a, a roll of polyurethane he stuck it together with two inch bare tape and flew this thing and we, we flew them with, with parachutes of course <laughs> but it, um, it, was, it was amazing because um, when you saw it flying you could just see the basket because it was a see through balloon so it was his basket travelling through the air, it was really Harry Potter country I can tell you <laughs> That's awesome. So um, you decided to set up Australia's first commercial hot air ballooning operation, yeah? Yeah, I think it was all a bit um, adventurous in those days, and uh, but I saw a dollar in it, you know, to, you know, frankly, there's no other word for it. And I also loved it, don't get me wrong, it was a passion as well. And it, and it, it neatly um, grafted onto our adventure travel business. We were doing Himalayan trekking and mountaineering and uh, whitewater rafting and bicycle safaris and camels, anything you can think of that involved danger, we were organising it. And naturally, um, we added ballooning onto that and I then specialised in ballooning and it's become much more sophisticated over the last 30 years and uh, organised and um, predictable and and safe and uh, wonderful, really. You know, if you haven't flown over Melbourne, you know, get on that phone and book a flight. <laughs> Indeed, and it's not like there's only one company flying, there's now four over the city. Indeed, uh, four balloon companies and um, they're all good pilots and uh, they'll, they'll look after you. Uh, I think most of them have all started under your company in one way or another, haven't they? Oh, I think um, I know all the pilots pretty well and um, when, when I first started commercial ballooning, what, 30 years ago, we flew in the first year, I think we flew about 200 passengers, maybe 300 passengers in that first year. But now, Australia-wide, there will be at least 200,000 passengers flying every year in balloons, maybe more. It's a huge industry. It's gone from basically start-up 30 years ago to an, uh, you know, an enormous recreation um, 
tourism industry. Once you got things up and running in in Australia, you started up near Sydney, didn't you? Our business started in Sydney and I um, set up a balloon operation out west of uh, Sydney, central New South Wales, and then one over the Hunter Valley, one at Camden and then at Rutherglen. And then in 1986, um, I was lucky enough to have some friends in the right places to set an operation up over Melbourne. And it was a very um, interesting time because the idea of operating a, a, a vehicle over the city without a steering wheel, um, basically... Um, was fairly novel as far as civil aviation was concerned. But look, to give them the credit, they, they gave us a trial period. And, um, and I, I think Melbourne, the Melbourne balloon operation was probably the first major urban operation anywhere in the world. I, I would think it was. And soon after that, within a few years or so, there were operations over Brisbane and Canberra and, um, and out, of, out of Sydney, Parramatta. We can't fly into Sydney unfortunately because of the airspace. Uh, yeah. But Melbourne, you can fly everywhere. It's just great. When did you get the idea about um, flying over Everest? I'd always considered myself a mountaineer before I considered myself a balloon pilot. But um, once I'd started flying balloons and loved it, I, it was natural to me to, to, to want to take this balloon into terrain that uh, was sensational to look down on. And uh, what, what, what could be more sensational than flying over eight of the highest peaks on earth, you know, including Everest. And we did that in 1991, went right over the summit with a couple of balloons. It was a sensational flight. So, yeah, you were the first people in the, in the world to fly a hot air balloon over the summit of Everest, weren't you? Well, you, you need to realise that uh, there were quite a few people who wanted to do it. And uh, there, was a, there were about four or five attempts before our first successful attempt. And uh, so since then, of course, the the amount of money that you need and the and the organisation required has meant that really there hasn't been any other flights done. So it's been done once and that's it at the moment. And it'll probably get done again one day. So now you set up Balloon Sunrise in '86, and uh, how long were you flying balloons over Melbourne for? I set up Balloon Sunrise. Yeah, I think probably in 19. Um, 1979 I set up oh, Balloon okay. Sunrise, but 1986 we set up over Melbourne. Right. So it was our first first time we flew over the city, and then I, I worked in Melbourne till about uh, 2000. So what's that? 25 years nearly, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, nearly 25 years. And then I sold the business and moved up to Byron Bay, where I set up another balloon business in Byron Bay. I'm living up in Byron now, which is really beautiful, but glad to be over Melbourne occasionally. Yeah, no, it's good to have you back, actually. Mm. Yeah, in fact, uh, it's because of your company and uh, one of your pilots that I got into ballooning in the first place. Well, um, well you're a great crew, Grant, and thanks for looking after me this morning. Thank you, no worries. Now, um, one other little question is, um, you've been in ballooning for a while here in Australia. What are some of the changes that you've seen go through? Well, uh, the biggest change is um, the quality of the equipment has been improving over the years and the the type of vent uh, that the balloons have now are really sensational. Kavanagh who makes the, all, all the Australian balloons has designed this world class system that um, makes makes flying much much more safer than it ever was when I first started. And the, the other change that I've noticed is um, well, a few other changes, but one significant one for Melbourne, where I've just flown this morning, is that there's absolutely no doubt when I first started, the the open areas were extensive and it was a much easier city to, city to fly in terms of landing sites. But over the 30... Well, yeah, I guess it's now um, 30 years, I suppose, or close to... The number of open areas in, in and around Melbourne have dis- diminished enormously. You know, like the Williamstown Rifle Range is now a huge housing estate and... The Kew Cottages area there is being built out and 
the Studley Park has um, been gobbled up and Albert Park is half the size that it was when I first started. And, and I think probably about 10, 20 acres of inner city open space disappears every year here, um, maybe, maybe even more. And um, it's a bit like, you know, um, a, a computer game. It just bits and pieces of Melbourne get eaten up by development and you don't notice it's happening until it's just all gone. Yeah, well, if you haven't flown over Melbourne mm. for a while and you come back to do it, it's, it's more noticeable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay, anything else you'd like to say about ballooning and flying? Well, no, just um, get yourself up there and enjoy the flight. Thanks very much, Chris. The greater that I'm involved with Played and Crazy Down Under, the more I've immersed myself in the wonderful world of the ubiquitously titled social media process. I've, at great reluctance, signed up for a MyBook or FacePage account. And despite the fact that I have the number of friends within social media that can be counted on one hand even after a serious industrial accident with a newspaper press, one of those friends is Grant McCarran. And the more recently technologically savvy of you would be aware that he passed the necessary examinations to become a qualified balloon pilot. As with all things in life, there is a quid pro quo clause. And this is indeed Grants. Hi, I'm Anthony Simmons, and this is The View from the Lounge. If, with great reluctance, we can ignore the mythology of human flight, and I'm referring to Icarus and his father Daedalus, it's pretty much a lay-down misere that the history of humans getting more than 20 feet up a tree and safely down again without too many detached limbs started with the Montgolfier brothers on the 21st of November 1783. Now, despite the fact that this feat was achieved with basically 47,000 pairs of your great-aunt's knickers sewn together and heated by an industrial-sized tub of baby oil or whale blubber, it was the dawn of lighter-than-air travel for the human race. Time and technology proved their mettle in the gradual but inevitable progress towards fixed-wing gliders, aircraft, jet propulsion, everything between the Zeppelin and the space shuttle. There remains, in my mind, however, a special and revered spot for that first and fundamental method of transport that we as a species use to defy that horrible nasty thing called gravity and making those initial tentative steps into the stratosphere. Now, one of the reasons I'm so enamoured about ballooning is that my mother has always expressed an interest in going on a balloon flight, even one of those early morning flights over Melbourne. She never did it when she was physically capable, and now that age, time and multiple sclerosis have caught up with her, it's highly unlikely that she ever will take that flight. So I'm thinking of doing it in her place. Ignoring the fact that nowadays you utilise a gas-fired barbecue underneath the modern equivalent of 47,000 pairs of your great-aunt's knickers currently shaped as a house or a glass of beer or a cartoon character or occasionally a balloon, the overriding attraction is simple. Silence. 
I've flown a fair way around this lovely little blue marble in space we call the Earth, and there's always been in the background that quiet but steady drone of engines that, whilst sometimes after four martinis can lull you off to sleep, usually brings to my mind the incessant buzzing of a swarm of demented bumblebees located in the general vicinity of the anvil and the stirrup of your inner ear, so the idea of flight without noise is quite attractive. The other part of ballooning that piques my interest is that it appears so sedate, a very refined method of travel. There's no great haste, no rush, no buggering about with metal detectors or passports and customs and immigration. And if you remember to bring along a few Yorkshire leek sausages, you may also get a semi-decent feed included with the trip, which is more than I can say for my recent flight from Melbourne to Cairns. So where does Grant fit into all of this, you are no doubt wondering? Well, now that he is a fully-fledged Capitano de Bologna and, on a semi-regular basis, touts for cheapo balloon flights on my face or page book, I'm thinking that I should strong-arm him into getting me one of those balloon flights over Melbourne in the morning. Or strong-arm him as much as a 62-kilogram male can wrestle anyone larger than a 13-year-old schoolgirl. So, with a sprinkling of shekels and some vague threats of physical harm akin to being flogged with warm lettuce, I'll get to try ballooning, take some pictures, and afterwards, I'm going to sit down with my mother and tell her all about it. In fact... We may even raise a glass or two to that. And thank you, Infrequent Flyer. I tell you what, Grant, he's putting you on the spot there, I think. No, I think you may be right there, mate. I get the feeling that a certain infrequent one is hoping to uh, get a free flight over Melbourne. What do you say? Yeah, I tell you what, if he reckons he only weighs 62 kilos, you know, I reckon my left leg weighs that much just on its own, mate. So I think you'd yep. be able to fit him in the balloon, no problem. No, I think you could be right, yeah. Um, but he's he's doing reasonably well with the weight there. We uh, we may need to get people like you on to uh, balance the load. Oh, yes. Well, of course, you know, I'm only a small fella. As anybody who's met me knows. Oh, indeed, mate, indeed. Now, I tell you what, Cathy, after that interview with Helene Young, you should be inspired to uh, finish your novels and your, your writings. How's that all going? Yes, fabulous. It's all over the landroom floor. <laughs> oh, dear, that's, that's a worry. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe we need to get Helene down here to Melbourne and do some mentoring for you. Yes, you can learn a lot. Actually, I notice on her, she's very active on Facebook and Twitter and she's a very active and keen blogger and she's been doing the book tour thing lately, talking at libraries and God knows all over the place. I think she's been down to Melbourne a couple of times and actually we worked out through Facebook that we were within about two city blocks of each other, but we didn't know, (laughs) each didn't know that the other was there. Well, she was just down here near my place, but I was on the other side of town in Richmond at my office. Uh, oh, yeah. We were trying to see if we could uh, wrangle her a uh, space in a balloon, but the weather was just not her friend and yeah. her schedule Her schedule was pretty busy. Well, we should just mention that uh, if people want to catch up with Helene's website, that's uh, very easy to find. It's at heleneyoung.com. And uh, Kathy mentioned there about her Twitter feed, and that is also at Helene Young. Okay, Grant, let's move on to shout-outs before we wrap this episode up. Kathy, uh, let's start with you. You've, you've picked yourself up a fan there on Facebook. I found a new friend. Hello, Mark Williamson. How are you going? Mark Williamson fanned me after the last... Um 
um, episode. Why were you hot? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. Oh, well, that's, that's our friend Mike Williamson up in Sydney, of course, who, who knows uh, that I am a, an aficionado on all things rugby and beer. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> he, whenever Mike needs to know something about rugby and beer, he comes straight to Steve, finds out what you do, and does the immediate opposite. That's right. I, in fact, normally I just refer him to Grant when it comes to beer. <laughs> well, all I know is that he's done 30 hours in a warrior. Yeah, I've only got a couple of hours in a warrior. Once we're warriors. But anyhow, that's a different story. Oh, uh, speaking of uh, things warrior, warrior, and once were, Gary Clarkson has uh, let us know that uh, Nil Aviation Heritage Centre is working on an Avro Anson restoration, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, he also mentions here, Grant, that the uh, Hindmarsh Shire Council has allocated $255,000 to the Nil Aviation uh, Heritage Centre. So, uh, boy, that's a lot of money. They've, they've obviously done some good lobbying there, Grant. You know, we ought to uh, get them on the uh, on the podcast and have a bit of a chat about what they do there, I think. I think that's a pretty good idea, mate, because they've got a fly-in plan for Saturday the 20th of October. So uh, I think that could be a lot of fun to uh, promote a little and see if maybe we can't make our way out there. Mm, absolutely. Well, thanks for sending that information into us, Gary, and uh, we'll certainly chase that one up. Now, uh, Grant, let's head over uh, across the Tasman there, and there's a couple of uh, New Zealand uh, shout-outs that we need to do, a couple of interesting things going on over there. That's right, mate. Uh, the uh, rebuild of a mosquito, de Havilland mosquito, the wooden wonder, the twin merlin engine. Uh, light fighter bomber is coming along quite nicely. Uh, they've had photos of it outside being towed around. It looks like uh, the engines are, have been mounted. The propellers aren't on. Haven't painted it yet. I think they were just taking it across to somewhere they were going to paint it, but looking very good. And that's due to be flying for the first time towards the end of September. Now, I don't think we're going to get a chance to get over there unless uh, my cunning plan to uh, attain world domination via lottery win uh, actually comes off. But so far, that's been less than successful. So I don't think I'm going to be able to make over there for uh, the mosquito flight which is a shame because it would be absolutely gorgeous to see that one fly again wouldn't it? It absolutely would Grant and in fact I was pinging our New Zealand correspondent Dan Morris uh, just the other day and uh, trying to uh, get him to do a couple of stories for us so uh, that might be one we might have to send him off to. Not knowing anything about uh, you know where he lives in relation to where this is but uh, hey we'll just send him. New Zealand's not that big is it? Well it's at Ardmore in Auckland and uh, he's in Palmerston North so uh, he's quite often going around the place in a DA42 with his students. I'm sure they could probably organise a bit of a trip away to Ardmore and while the student's having a coffee and planning the return flight, he could nip over and say hi to the guys. I'm sure of it. Come on, Dan. Yeah, well, of course, you know, hang on, you know, Dan's a coffee addict, so don't get him anywhere near the coffee. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. It'd probably be here to be having the coffee and the student would go over and do the interview. <laughs> okay, also going on over there is the Willet Fly Project. That's right, mate. This is a replica of the famous Pierce aircraft, the one that supposedly flew before the Wright brothers, but no photographic evidence was obtained. Well, there's lots of photos of this one. It's a replica of the aircraft, and they've been working very hard on it for a number of years. And uh, it's getting very, very close to first flight. It's looking pretty fantastic. And uh, yeah, just do a search for Will It Fly? Uh, we'll have a couple of links in the show notes for you about it. Uh, looking really good and very eagerly watching that one. Yeah, actually, in fact, uh, just today as we record this, uh, they've actually just, they've got a Facebook page, uh, Will It Fly? Question mark. If uh, people want to go and follow that. And they've just um, posted some new photos here. And I'll tell you what, it looks pretty close to completion. Oh, yeah. They've moved it into the hangar. They've fully rigged it. And uh, they've had a few people looking at it and checking it out. And 
definitely hanging out to see how this one goes. And while we're talking about uh, aviation in New Zealand, uh, Grant, I, I think we've mentioned this before, but uh, I'll just uh, give it another plug here. There is actually a New Zealand-based aviation podcast around these days. In fact, they've done, looks like, 25 episodes now, and that's called the Wings Over New Zealand podcast. Now, it's a bit of a long URL. It's at cambridgeairforce.org.nz slash W-O-N-Z underscore show. I tell you what we'll do, Grant. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's a very, very good uh, podcast there, uh, done by Dave Homewood. And uh, as I said, I think I said to Dave the last time, we've got to get him a better URL for that podcast. <laughs> yeah, that would be kind of handy. But, uh, you know, look, it's a, it's a great little show and definitely worth checking out. Kathy, thanks for joining us and thanks for organising that uh, wonderful chat with Helene. It was great stuff. And uh, what's on the agenda for you for the next couple of months until we drag you back onto the show? Um, actually, the next podcasty type thingy that I'm hoping to do is to track down a fella down at Bow and Heads and go for a fly and something upside down that'll make me scream. Oh, awesome. Excellent. I guess by the time this goes to air, we'll have an idea of whether that's happening. He's informed. Notes. I'd love to be there watching and um, we'll have to do what we did when I went up with uh, Dave Pilkington and, uh, you know, rig a live mic. Oh, uh, yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> screaming. Yes. <laughs> and swearing, probably. Um, yeah, that'd be fun. So maybe that's the next thing. Well, fantastic. We'll look forward to that. And if and when you do that, we'll have to come down with the cameras. <laughs> The famous before and after shots, huh? Can't I just do a selfie? <laughs> no, because you'll, you'll make sure you look good before and after. That's that right. would be the real thing. I haven't looked good for 30 years, Grant. <laughs> oh, well, the website is looking good, Kathy. So uh, tell the listeners uh, once again where they can find you online. au. And, of course, uh, folks, you can find Kathy on Facebook as uh, Kathy Mexted Writing and Photography. You can catch up with all of Kathy Mexted's <laughs> stuff there. Hey, we should mention here too, Grant, speaking of Facebook, that we're trying to get our Facebook follower numbers up to 750 and we're going to bribe our listeners. Uh, we're looking for a number 750. What are we at now? We're at, uh, as we record this in mid-August 2012, uh, just for historical purposes, we're at 617. So uh, what are we going to do? We'll, we'll give away a plain crazy down under cap. So the 750th person who signs up and becomes a friend of ours and likes us on Facebook, we'll give them a shiny new PCDU cap with the red trim. They're really cool go faster ones. And also, once we hit 750, we're going to randomly select someone whose Facebook profile says that they're in the Melbourne or Australia or able to get to Melbourne kind of area. And uh, they're going to win a trial introductory flight with our good friends at Oz Air Services at Turidan. And if they already know how to fly, they could always come down and get an introduction to the Jabiru or one of their other light sport aircraft, or even perhaps just use it as a bit of extra time to go flying. So there you go. So there's uh, some wonderful incentive. Not only will you be able to go for that flight, you'll be able to do it in one of our stylish plane crazy down under caps. I think that's pretty good bribery, mate. Well, that just about wraps it up for episode 92. But hey, don't despair. We've got plenty more for you coming up in a couple of weeks, including a chat with the organisers of Ozfly at Narrowmind to see how plans are progressing there. We'll also be chatting with a politician or two about all things aviation and no, not just about the carbon tax. I promise I'll behave myself. And we'll also be uh, introducing a new member of the team as we expand our presence over to the West Coast. So uh, very exciting times there. Remember, you can catch up with us each week on the Airplane Geeks podcast with our Australia Desk Report and a little less frequently on Flight Time Radio with our Flying Down Under segment as we do our part to uh, showcase aviation in this region of the world. Archives of those reports can be found at Australia australiadesk.net and flyingdownunder.com. Thanks very much for listening, folks. As always, we hope you enjoyed it. We'll talk to you again soon, but I tell you what, if you're doing some flying down in this part of the world, Grant, well, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer, Grant McCarran, Anthony Simmons, the infrequent flyer, and Kathy Mexted. 
you can follow us on Twitter at PCDU. And for more information about the team, feedback, storylines you'd like us to follow, and any advertising inquiries, go to our website, plaincrazydownunder.com. Plain Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.plaincrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. No, 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 no. You, no, that wouldn't happen. You're too refined for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, if our listeners could only hear the stuff that gets cut out of this podcast before it goes to air. Oh, I think that would probably be a uh, adults only version of the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, we should live stream this one time. That'd be fun. <laughs> oh, they'd never listen to us again, mate. <laughs> Wabbit season, duck season. All right, let's go. Well, g'day, folks, and welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under, episode 92 of the program that looks at the world. Oh, Kathy, you can't do that with your headset. <laughs> what the <hell> was that? <laughs> Kathy, were you doing funny things with that headset again? I just moved the microwave. Microwave. <laughs> well, get the microwave off your head and put the headset back on. <laughs> Any wonder your neck sore. And remember, you've got to mute it before you move things around. Ah. <sighs> Always mute, move, unmute. Don't forget the unmute. Awesome. I was on such a roll there too. It's not like I've done this intro once or twice or 92 times before. Will you do yeah. it again? Yeah, we'll do it again. Ready? Well, g'day, folks, and welcome back to Plain Crazy Down. Do you reckon you'll ever write a book about a petite little blonde flight attendant falling in love with a handsome <laughs> airline captain? There's just a hint of grey in his sideburns, and then they move to the country and renovate an old barn and raise pigs. Only if I'm going to come and interview you, Cathy. Have we, we, we scratched a little surface there, have we? <laughs> but does that have to be my book? <laughs> that would have to be yours. That would have to be an autobiography, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, I'd have to dye my hair blonde. Just, uh, just ask Rob Mark. Just ask Rob Mark. Yeah, he was very uncharitable towards me recently <laughs> on the Airplane Geeks. I'll tell you what, Rob Mark, if I thought you listened to this podcast, I'd have a go at you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now, now. <laughs> Anyway, well, Kathy, an excellent interview there with uh, Helene Young. And having a look on her website there, she um, I think she um, gets a lot of time to do writing because she's got a lot of books she's putting out. Where'd she go? Are you there, Kathy? Yeah. Oh. What? <laughs> you were throwing a light at you and you've gone quiet. The one time she goes quiet. <laughs> Sorry. What did you want me to say? <laughs> Oh, don't worry. I'm not sure how to come back. I was just trying to, you know, as you were busy supplying me with yet another blooper, I was trying to bring you into the conversation. <laughs> Do you wear polo shirts, Helene? I love polo shirts, yeah. Love, really? I love polo What's shirts. That? I really like polo shirts with logos on them. Do you? Boy, this mm. is so subtle. <laughs> <laughs> 
I went to this air show once. I met these great guys at an air show and they promised me a T-shirt and it's actually a really beautiful garment. It's a work of art. Well, that just about wraps up this episode. Uh, tell you what, another uh, action-packed show there. That sounds ridiculous. I'm going to say that again. You can catch up with all of Kathy's online exports. Online exports. Online exploits <laughs> right there. I've written two. Uh, we'll use that as They're a... They're both on the landing okay. floor. Hang on, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've, got it. It. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. She's published three books. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Is that different to printing? Oh! <laughs> hey! <laughs> All right, um, be castled by a sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>